From the Salem Center for Policy at the University of Texas at Austin, welcome to an episode of Policy in Pieces. I'm your host, Scott Bogus. I want a one-page data sheet that tells me, is there fossil fuel? Is there tobacco? Is there you know, a bunch of hot-button issues? And really gives me the metrics at the portfolio level to see, is this the portfolio I wanted? That's Barbara Novick talking about ESG disclosure. She co-founded the firm BlackRock, the biggest investment management company in the world. We asked her about its journey to $9 trillion of assets under management, the experience of the global financial crisis, and how, a decade ago, she started its global policy group to become a leading voice on market reform. She gives her views on the current state of financial stability, the resiliency of markets during the COVID crisis, and new challenges around ESG and climate risk. My co-host today is McCombs Business School student, Shuming Zhao. Barbara, hello. Welcome to the show. Good morning. And I have a student co-host today, Shuming Zhao. Say hello. Hi, thank you for having me. Uh, Barbara, we're, we're glad to have you here today. You, you came and visited my class virtually last fall. I think the students universally agreed that it was one of the highest octane lectures they ever received. Uh, you treated them as if they were regulators that needed to hear about financial market issues. You didn't hold anything back. And so it's great to have you back and be able to ask you some questions uh, interview style. And one of the things that you didn't talk about then last fall is you. Uh, you're the co-founder of BlackRock, which started in 1988. And it now manages, I believe, it crossed the $9 trillion threshold in assets under management. Uh, can you just tell us how that came about? Did you ever think 30 years later you would be at an asset management company managing $9 trillion of dollars? Uh, well, first of all, thanks for having me. I'm happy to come back. In terms of BlackRock, you know, when we started the company in 1988, our concept was we were at sell-side firms, a combination of First Boston and Lehman. And what we were seeing is people were buying securities and coming back to us and saying, can you model the cash flows? And as mortgage securities go over time, the cash flows actually change and the projections of them change based on interest rates and prepayments and a number of inputs. So we would do that for people. And it started to occur to us that we had analytics and insights that other people in the market did not have. So that was the original concept is we could create a firm that was going to focus on risk management, was going to model securities at the individual security level, and that was going to enable us to have an edge, if you will, on what we were buying and how we were building a portfolio. So simple concept. Of course, there were eight of us. We all did a little of some, something. Think of us as a dot-com before there were dot-coms. And it really came together as eight people with industry experience who then came up with a lot of new ideas. And rather than being a Me Too firm, really being an innovative firm and forward thinking. So did we think that we would manage $9 trillion? Did we think that we'd be the largest asset manager in the world? No, of course not. We were new. Uh, we were hoping we'd still be in business a year or two out. And we worked really hard to get ourselves established. 
And then, of course, over time, we diversified the business quite a bit and took that initial kernel of risk management and applied it much more broadly across portfolios and different types of portfolios, different asset classes. So how much of the past 30 years was skill versus luck? Were you opportunistic in ways you could never have anticipated, or was it all just you knew what you were doing and you had no doubt you'd be the successful? Well, I think you always have doubts, but that's different than skill versus luck. I think there's an element of timing. We started our business at a time when there was very little focus on risk management. And so we were early, we were first. Today, people assume a basic level of risk management that if you don't have, you're not even viable. So the timing and the ability to bring something new to the market was, I think, very important. I don't necessarily consider that luck. I consider that um, good planning and, and really thinking about how to launch a firm. In terms of skill, I think we brought a lot of fresh ideas. I think we bought a lot of energy. We didn't do copycat things. We developed our own portfolio management system because we couldn't find what we wanted in the market. That ability to model every security, to compare each portfolio to its benchmark, those kinds of things that, again, today seem so basic to people were not available commercially in the market. Same thing on the marketing and, and business development side. We didn't hire salespeople. I actually went out personally, cold called companies, knocked on lots of doors and talked to people just to understand what their investment challenges were. And from that, we found opportunities to develop products. So, for example, in the defined contribution area, there were a couple of insurance companies that had blown up that had created problems for those plan sponsors with guaranteed investment contracts. And it was a very small piece of their portfolio. But what each one said to me is, although it's a very small portion of my portfolio, I'm spending 90% of my time on this, you know, less than 5% piece. And I, you know, don't want to be in that position going forward. As a result, we went and put our product development hats on and created the first of the synthetic GICs. And we worked with a number of different partners to launch that product. That then became a door opener for us. We got inside a number of plans where we would have been shut out if we were simply a Me Too firm. And then once we got to know them and we got the experience with them, we found other opportunities to do more traditional asset management. So Barbara, as you mentioned, you started off in the global clients group then went on to create and lead the global policy group. Can you talk about what that group does, why it was founded, and why were you chosen to lead it? So a little backstory. Um, in 2008, I actually went to Larry, uh, Larry Fink, our CEO, and told him that I was ready to retire. Um, I had uh, some personal challenges. My, my parents were quite ill and my kids were had three kids and they were all teenagers and somehow globe trotting and taking phone calls at 3 a.m. to deal with one problem or another really didn't feel sustainable. So that was the plan, March 2008. And he said, please stay for a year, which I said, OK, and that I would do a proper transition. And we had a, a 
creative idea on a succession plan, and I'd pass the baton on March 1st, 2009. Now, we all know what happened. Uh, the first six months of that were fine. It was after Bear Stearns and before Lehman. And then the next six months were definitely not fine. And we got to March 1st, and I was very happy to pass that baton. But in addition, Larry had offered me that I could stay on part-time as a senior advisor to him. Nothing particularly defined, but I thought, you know, I've worked for Larry at that point, probably 25 years. Why not stay on? It's, it's a good sort of a free option, if you will. In looking at the markets and in looking at what had happened in those last six months, Larry said, why don't you go down to Washington and figure out what's going to change? So I said, okay, uh, I don't really know anyone in Washington other than some clients. Where should we start? So we agreed. We hired a lobbying firm, and they took me all over town. I met with administrative people. I met with people at regulators. I met with people on the Hill. And I just went around with a notebook saying, what are the top three to five things that you would change? And I came back and I said, okay, there is agreement on the top three. The top three are OTC derivatives, money market funds, and the GSEs. And the problem is, after those top three, there's a really, really long list of things people want to change. And I don't see how investors are going to be represented in those discussions. So we talked about it. We had a couple of ideas about trade associations. Anyway, we went down a couple of different paths. At the end of the day, we decided that we really needed to start a group. And initially, the group was very small. It was me and one very young person. Over time, we grew it. We merged around then with BGI. They had a very good person who was part of that deal. She joined my team. In Europe, there was obviously a lot of activity. AIFMD, which is the Alternative Investment Fund Directive, was active. And somebody took on that project as sort of a one-off project. And she was someone who had worked for me in my prior role. And she came to me and she said, you know, I think this public policy stuff is really going to take off in Europe. There's going to be a lot of follow-on projects to this one. I really enjoyed this. And if you're hiring, I would be interested in working for you again. So I said, well, that's interesting. And I think you're right. And so now we had a team of two people, one in London, one in the U.S., and a junior person to support us. And it kind of kept growing. The focus on public policy became a global initiative, and eventually we had teams in Asia Pacific, Europe, Middle East, and U.S., or I shouldn't say U.S., Americas, really. And today that structure is still in place. So how strategic was the BGI acquisition? Was that an artifact purely of the financial crisis and the opportunity came up, and how important was that? to the strategy of BlackRock? So the strategy work that led to that acquisition was actually done in 2007, 2008. We were looking at ETFs, kind of had our eye on them, thought they were really important, thought it was the direction of the future for the mutual fund industry, and we wanted to figure out if we should enter. 
So we did a strategic study. I worked on it with a, another fellow. We went into it. I was a skeptic and he was gung-ho. When we were done with our project, we had changed positions. I was gung-ho and he was the skeptic. And I was gung-ho, but I was gung-ho for an acquisition, not a start from scratch. And it turns out with ETFs, there were a lot of licensing agreements back then. Most of the what I'd call good or mainstream indices had been locked up by other firms. And to really get in, when you looked at the numbers, almost all the money in ETFs at that point was in equities, almost nothing in bonds. So our strength was we could create bond ETFs that might be an interesting change, but you needed a certain base of revenue to even break even, never mind be profitable. And the bigger pot was on the equity side where we didn't have a strategic advantage. In fact, we had a disadvantage because of the indices being locked up. So we kind of agreed to put it aside. We talked to a couple of providers and people weren't at that point willing to sell. And I recall still the September 2008 board meeting where we presented this and we talked about how it was important for the future, but we needed the right opportunity. And then, of course, the right opportunity presented itself and the work had already been done and it was extremely attractive to be able to take the market leader, which isn't the normal way you would go about that. But all of a sudden the market leader was available because Barclays wanted to raise capital. Now, going back to your early question, is that luck or skill? I'd say you've laid the groundwork. So you have the skill component, but you got lucky on the timing that a high quality provider became available, which you couldn't have predicted when we did the strategic work. Do you think uh, Barclays regrets that decision? I don't know. It wasn't core to their business. And if you recall, they at first announced they were going to do a deal with a private equity firm which was going to separate the iShares portion of BGI from the rest. As an outsider looking in, but with knowledge of asset management, I absolutely could not figure out how they were going to split that firm in two. Because the same portfolio managers and the same operations people manage all that money, whether it's an index mutual fund, it's an index separate account, or it's an ETF. And I think it became actually a very painful process within BGI to try and figure out how to do that. And they included in that deal a provision where Barclays could continue looking and there would be a breakup fee, but it was explicitly allowed for them to continue looking. So we approached them and said, you know, how about selling the whole thing? And I don't think the separation of the two would have been a successful event. And I do think selling it as a whole was extremely successful. I know it was. So BlackRock has been known as an influential force in Washington and Brussels, probably due to your role leading the policy group. Can you talk about how BlackRock's approach to policy is unique from other asset management firms? It's actually a great question. There are two key things. Number one is most asset management firms did not have a public policy effort back in 2009. 
So that was part of the decision to set up a team was first we went, we talked to all the trade associations. Then we started talking to individual firms and saying, maybe we need an asset management trade association that's broader than any of the existing trade associations. Because ICI at that time primarily focused on 40 Act mutual funds, MFA focused on private funds. And when you sort of put the pieces together, sort of everything was covered, but not really. And there were gaps. And we thought, when you look at banks, you look at insurance companies, they have industry-wide trade associations. Asset managers, even to this day, don't. So that was what we first thought about. And why other firms didn't have it? Well, the same reason we didn't have it until 2009. You didn't need it. There weren't that many big public policy issues that you had to be concerned investors needed a seat at the table. Whereas coming out of the financial crisis, we thought there was going to be a wave of reform. And in fact, financial regulatory reform went on for a good 10 years. And we thought that that wave, it was important that investors' voice be heard. So what we set out was to create a voice for investors in the public policy debates and initially not realizing how much it would become a global discussion. So that's the first part. Why don't other firms have it? Today, some other firms definitely have something. I don't think it's as big or as robust or you know takes the same approach. So that leads to the approach. I approached it no differently than approaching the startup of BlackRock. We went out and we asked a lot of questions and we listened. And from that initial list of what's going to be important to you, what things do you want to change, we came back with ideas solutions, if you will. So it wasn't just about, well, that we don't want that regulation or that's bad regulation or don't regulate us, don't look at us. It was more, we saw the financial crisis too. We think there are real issues here. We think there are things that should be addressed, but let's make sure they're addressed in a way that is good for investors broadly. And so we started writing white papers. People would say, oh, you have a lot of good ideas. That's great. Can you send me something? I said, oh, ah, send me something. So I realized we had to start being very disciplined and writing down what we believed. And it's a good discipline because internally it meant we had to get consensus across different groups sometimes. We had to look at practices and sometimes enhance them or change them because, you know, maybe maybe that wasn't the best way to do it anymore. Or maybe we should add some bells and whistles. So we actually took a very deep dive approach. And then we wrote white papers that were, I'd say, academic quality white papers. Um, some people accused us of writing too many pages, um, but they were all footnoted. They were chock full of data. And I think they really helped a lot of policymakers either understand a problem or understand better how to solve a problem, which was really the goal we had. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up the white papers because it reminds me uh, of a story. I was giving a talk in Ireland at an ETF conference, and I was still on stage giving my remarks when my phone started buzzing with the special rings back from D.C. and continued on the panel afterwards. And apparently I had said something in my remarks 
and somebody in the audience from BlackRock had texted you. And before I was even done with my remarks, somebody from the SEC was asking me, Scott, what are you saying publicly about ETFs? And, and that to me was, okay, well, the machinery at BlackRock and their policy advocacy must be working if I can't even get down from giving a speech before somebody's asking me a question about it. Uh, some people did accuse us of somehow being everywhere at the same time. And uh, that was a combination of extraordinary amounts of travel, very good listening and sending people to events. And our goal was to hear the objections or the concerns. And even um, you know, in the, the aftermath of what happened with COVID, we did the same thing and we ended up writing 12 papers so I'm sure your class appreciated reading all 12 of those when I gave my talk. But in all seriousness, those papers are not random papers. Those papers are, we went out, we listened, we heard what people were concerned about, and we said, how can we bring data forward? How can we put this in a context that people can understand the different pieces, how they relate to each other, and then continue after the first set of papers were written to listen to what people were saying. And in fact, one of the papers, we did an explicit addendum because there were a number of concerns raised after we had gone to print. We said, well, those are important and it's worth doing a little extra piece on it. So there are a lot of white papers. I've heard some of them have gone viral over the years because people are so interested in the topic. Sometimes people ask me, how do I know to write a paper on something they're thinking about before they've asked? And I say, well, I'm just listening to the questions and the speeches and reading speeches as well as attending. And that was really the, the best way of, you know, if you can solve people's problems, if you're listening to what their concerns are, you're much more um, useful and much more effective than if you're just going out with some position papers of what you believe and it's irrelevant what the other person thinks. I, I think having that two-way dialogue, I never look at these as someone wins and someone loses. It's much more of a joint journey and an educational process. And as I said, we changed some of our own practices in liquidity risk management, in derivatives, in a lot of things because we heard objections and it made us think about the problem differently and try and make our own risk management more robust. So in these white papers, many times you, you address issues or talk about financial market issues that are outside of asset management. Some would say that you're outside your lane and how can you be talking about that? Others might say, well, it's so interconnected. How could you not be talking about other issues? Do you want to share your thoughts on you know, why you, you pick up issues and themes that are not maybe directly tied to asset management issues? I'm not sure I can come up with any examples of that. I've actually, um, in some ways, felt like I was extremely narrowly focused, almost like an idiot savant kind of focus on asset management, you know, market structure issues, index issues, stewardship, I mean, many, many different topics. But I think all of them tie back to asset management, unless you can think of an example that's different than that. I was thinking of countercyclical capital buffers at banks was in your uh, pandemic white paper, but we'll get to that. But before we get there, can we talk a little bit about the global financial crisis and, and just start by asking, do you remember it, <laughs> given all that's happened since? 
And, you know, can you describe what it was like at BlackRock in terms of handling that from a business perspective? You talked about the policy perspective, at least from a business perspective. Did you think you would survive? Was there any concern at that time? So I remember it vividly. Those are the kinds of things that stay with you forever. Uh, September 2008, literally the world changed. And at that time, I was running all of our distribution, so business development, marketing, client service. And immediately, I'd say we went into a mode of let's understand what's going on and let's communicate with clients. So we were very cognizant of the uncertainty and the stress, and we knew our clients felt similarly. So literally every weekend we would have a session where we would talk about what had happened either during the week or in many cases over the weekend. And we would arrange for a client call, usually for Monday mornings. And I was amazed at how many people called in for those calls. So the first one, it was on short notice and we still had hundreds of callers. Um, As the sort of fall transpired and there was issue after issue, Um, What we found was literally thousands of people were calling in to listen and and hear our take on whether it was the GSEs, it was interest rates, it was just all sorts of of issues that came up that were investment issues. And I told my team to stay focused on what we had control over, which was communication, um, and to try and help clients in thinking through what they wanted to do in their portfolios. And so it was a a very stressful, very intense time. I don't think I ever wondered if BlackRock would survive. By that point, we were already a very diversified business. We had cash, we had equities, we had fixed income or bonds, uh, we had alternative products. We had a pretty robust set of products and we had very good risk management. I knew there would be some problems. We had some problems in our real estate portfolio in particular. Um, We had certainly challenges in the money market funds. So there were areas that were stressful and we set up essentially a war room where very senior people, founders of the firm sat um, and people came to them with problems and it made for very quick decision-making and assessment of, of a situation and decision-making. And that was a it was a very hands-on, very unusual time. So yeah, very vivid memories. As you were saying earlier, you thought about retiring before the financial crisis. So I'm sure you've had your share of market turmoils, but the crisis was undoubtedly something very different from anything in the past. So I was wondering, what did you learn from the crisis that you didn't know before? And more importantly, how did that affect your approach in the markets and in BlackRock? So we certainly saw that liquidity is king. And when you think about the COVID crisis, which I know you want to talk about later, um, that lesson was even more apparent. But the difference of the two crises in great financial crisis, it was a financial crisis generated by extreme risk taking generated by extreme leverage, generated by very bad credit decisions and and, um, due diligence on credit, 
generated even by fraud, something like a Madoff, as an example. So you had a lot of things going on that were all within the financial services sector. And you could even look at the regulators and say there was some, you know, regulatory footfalls. In the COVID crisis, quite differently, you have a crisis where it's coming from outside of the financial system and coming in as a pressure. And all that work that was done in between the two was the learning and then the improvement. So reducing leverage system-wide, having better capital, having better liquidity management, having better reporting. I mean, Scott, you were at the SEC. You know, I, I think, you know, when the questions came in, things like, who's, you know, what, who are the largest hedge funds? Good question. We don't have. We don't have any insight into that. They don't register. You know, who's using the most leverage? Who's using the most derivatives? Any question that got asked, the answer had to be at that time something along the lines of, good question. We don't capture that data. And so when you look back, actually, we did a retrospective paper in January 20, 2020, which is kind of ironic, thinking that the era of financial regulatory reform had concluded and we documented all the different changes that had been made to reporting, to liquidity, to derivatives, to just so many different parts of, of the capital markets and asset management, asset management products. Um, and of course, right after that got printed, um, we had the new crisis. So coming out of the old crisis, there were a lot of uh, fingers pointed at market-based financial intermediation and in the pejorative was called shadow banking. And that persisted in G20-esque bodies like the Financial Stability Board. But we don't call it shadow banking anymore. We call it non-bank financial intermediation. How important was it to reshape the narrative around market-based finance? Was it just semantics or was it more than that? I think it's more than that. I mean, the, the name shadow banking it's sort of pejorative, right? It, it, you get this sort of Darth Vader feeling. You, you hear scary music in the background. You know, something nefarious is being done. People are hiding things. Like, it just has connotations that are so negative. And yet, when you look at non-bank financial intermediation, it is a huge contributor to our economy. The marrying of capital and investors is a critical function. Imagine if pension funds were sitting on cash and had no place to put it. How would they ever meet their returns? Or insurance companies, or for that matter, individuals. What if you had no way of investing your money other than putting it in the bank and earning, well, today zero, right? Or close to zero. So this idea of bringing capital to places that need capital, whether they're companies, in equities, in bonds, in infrastructure projects, regardless of what type of capital investment, that combination is very important. When you look at Europe, they have something called Capital Markets Union as a big aspirational project. What is that? That's about diversifying away from bank finance, because relying just on bank finance is not a healthy economy. So I do think that name change is very important. We also wrote a long paper about market-based finance 
and the differentiation within it. So a money market fund is a very different product than a standard bond fund or a standard equity fund. An ETF is different than a mutual fund. And there's a spectrum of risk. And I think that's not well understood even today. And we've tried to convey that. So you know, the FSB puts out a, a monitor. I don't think they call it the shadow banking monitor anymore. They, they renamed it. But they aggregate a lot of things in one giant bucket. They make it sound very scary. So in the current um, discussions that I've seen, one of the things is when you talk about investment-grade bond funds, what do you mean by that? What I think it means is any bond fund that is triple B or better, or maybe it even has a small bucket for, for non-triple B, but investment-grade bond fund is very much investing in mortgages, agency securities, U.S. Treasury securities, as well as corporate bonds. That's different than saying an investment-grade bond fund is all investment-grade corporate bonds. And that's the kind of misunderstanding and misinformation. By lumping all bond funds together, we lose the understanding of short-duration bond funds are different than intermediate or different than long-duration, how people use those funds, what's the likelihood they're going to leave under different scenarios, and What's the risk if somebody needed to sell securities to meet redemptions? If it's a diversified bond fund, it has tons of liquidity with treasuries and agencies, and it would be extremely unlikely to need to sell corporate bonds in a rush. If it's a concentrated portfolio of just corporate bonds, it might be a different outcome. As a result, the risk management for those different products is different. When I look at a high-yield bond fund and the layers of liquidity that are built in, it's very different than that investment-grade bond fund that has more diversification. So I think understanding what might sound like nuances, but with things that are fundamental to asset management, is part of the challenge uh, because a lot of the researchers that are working on these questions are just not that steeped in asset management. And that leads to another question I have, and how much of this, these definitional problems, for example, of not understanding what it means to be an investment-grade bond fund, how much of that is working with prudential regulators and the education of how market-based finance works versus working with a market regulator like the FCA or the SEC who understands it and may have a different approach to regulation? Is, is that part of the problem, merit versus transparency regulation? One of the challenges has been bridging that language gap. And you know, I freely say to people, I'm not an expert in banks. I'm not an expert in insurance companies. I can muddle through and, and certainly know more than maybe average, but I'm not an expert by any stretch. I am an expert in asset management. And I find that very often the misunderstandings or the misinformation is the source of some of the challenge. Um, and yeah, I think we've worked hard. A lot of our papers are designed to fill in those gaps. And we've gotten very good feedback from people that they are explanatory and they do shed light on challenging and complicated problems that aren't that well understood. A good example, Scott, is in the ETF area, right? How many 
papers were written uh, by the official sector saying ETFs are the next disaster going to happen. And that kept, no matter what we said, no matter how we explained it, that kept being said. Then you look during the COVID crisis and ETFs actually performed exactly as expected. They provided price discovery. They provided transparency. They provided liquidity in a market that was essentially closed. And all of a sudden, you know, ETFs went from being somehow villains that were going to be destructive and, and blow everybody up to heroes that provided important functions for the market at a, during a, a liquidity crisis. So I think that's one of the shining examples of how misunderstandings and, and how not really understanding some of the nuances leads to hypotheses and, and conjecture around asset management that needs to be addressed. So that's a, that brings up a good point. I remember if you dial back to, I think it was August in 2015, when we had the market disruption and a lot of ETFs were, there were trading halts and pauses and a lot of issues around the operational aspects of ETFs at that time. But one of the narratives was that ETFs are problematic. Look at how fragile they are. They all broke and it wasn't the underlying stocks. And it seems that narrative has changed a little bit to say, no, the ETFs are the shock absorbers. That's where you see the issues first because that's where institutional investors go to hedge. And, you know, since then, we haven't had those same types of episodes or at least that severity. I seem to recall that being maybe an early BlackRock view. Was that a BlackRock view? And is, is that, and you now think that is the kind of the consensus view of ETFs and their role in markets? So if we go back to that, call it flash crash inequities back in 2015, what was fascinating was the number of very technical things that went wrong. And many of them were pure equity market structure issues. Uh, we actually convened a group. Uh, we had brokers, we had ETF providers, we had custodians, we had all different, we, the exchanges, we had all different market participants come together to talk right after it happened about what happened, what did they see, what did they experience, and to make recommendations. We wrote it all down, and we wrote one of those famous white papers, which did go viral. And in it, we came up with a series of recommendations. And it was fascinating because so many of them were what I'd call extremely weedy, not very sexy, not very interesting, but very weedy, very technical changes. They were at the stock exchange level. They were things that the SEC could do. They were things that broker-dealers could do on their own. And it was a little bit of there's something for everyone. I'm happy to say that over the next five years, people really did take to heart what we recommended. And again, it wasn't just BlackRock. It was a whole consortium of people. And we all went out and we talked about it. And like we didn't just sort of put out a paper and let it, let it die. We kept coming back to saying, you know, the equity markets have a fragility to them. It's not really an ETF problem. It's an equity market structure problem. And I'm happy to say many, if not all, of those recommendations, you could go down the list and go chick, 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 chick. Many of them were implemented. So now you roll it forward and you have the COVID crisis. Does anyone talk about the equity markets being broken? No. 
they talk about the equity markets being volatile, multiple system-wide halts, market-wide halts in a very short period of time, many, many, many limit up, limit down situations on individual stocks. But I have not seen a single narrative suggesting the equity markets were broken. Had they not made all those technical changes, which had to do with the timing of data feeds, the broker dealers and the orders they took and how they took them, there were so many things. Had they not done those, I think we would have had a very bad experience in the equity markets in March 2020. It is interesting. We focus on the things that go wrong that are bad, and that gets all the attention. But you make a good point that during the pandemic, equity markets worked extremely well. And all of the you know thresholds for trading halts and pauses, I mean, those are really just open empirical questions. Nobody really knew what the right thresholds were. And we got a test. And if you look back, you know, all things considered, it performed pretty remarkably well. Exactly. And that's why when we wrote the lessons from COVID papers, we said there are a lot of learnings here, positive and negative. And the positive ones, the equity market being one, the ETF adding liquidity and and being a price discovery tool and, and many things that ETFs did, another good example. And then we started extrapolating. We looked at OTC derivatives. You know, they didn't break either. Right. Again, a lot of good reforms were done, a lot of things much better, more transparency, better risk management, etc. So then we looked at those and we said, well, what do those things have in common? What things worked well? None of them went through a bank balance sheet. Well, that's important. Right. So you asked about, you know, going beyond asset management. Well, banking and bank intermediation is very closely related to asset management when banks step back and won't do any intermediation. So you can't ignore that and say, oh, never mind, that's banks. No, that's where banks intersect with the markets and asset management. And you have to look at that and think about that holistically to understand the crisis and be able to make changes that improve the markets. So let's think about the holistic approach to financial market and bank regulation and talk a moment about FSOC, the Financial Stability Oversight Council. That's a body where we have prudential regulators, market regulators, insurance companies, and a whole host of other people that talk about what to do, if anything, about financial stability and markets. And let me just start with just the, the basic question. This was a Dodd-Frank Act creation. How is it doing? During Dodd-Frank, we were actually very supportive of FSOC being created, and we saw it as a formalization of what had been the president's working group. The president's working group was less formal, a little bit more voluntary, didn't really have any regulatory-type powers, didn't have a, a staff dedicated, etc. And given what happened in the crisis, it seemed like there should be a body that's looking across these different entities, that's looking at risk building up in the system. And when you think about all the things that went wrong in the great financial crisis, had somebody been connecting the dots on the use of leverage, the use of derivatives, the size of the books, the lack of collateral or the under collateralization, the risk management, all those things which came out after the fact, if somebody was looking at that 
in a forward-looking way, probably would be able to avert or certainly diminish some of that risk. And so the FSOC, I think the concept was a very good one. Um, I think what was unfortunate is the power of designation became the focus of FSOC. Designation of? Of individual firms. And while certainly there are some situations where a designation makes sense, it became the thing. Like that was the work of FSOC. And so then you set up this same kind of who's going to win, who's going to lose dynamic and also done very secretively. Not a good combination. At the end of the day, FSOC did look at asset management, um, did a deep dive, did a number of, com you know, put out ideas for comments, um, asked for requests for information. There was a, a, quite a few different things that, that went through. At the end of the day, as the people in FSOC understood asset management better, they realized individual firms should not be designated, but in fact, you needed to look at products and activities system-wide. Some people talk about that as a win versus lose situation. Again, I don't see that at all. I see that as an educational process with an outcome that makes sense. If you want to reduce risk in money market funds and you designated the top three or the largest three money market fund providers, Either investors would look at that and say, wow, that's great. I really like this. Those providers are now the only ones I want to do business with. Or they would look at it and say, oh, that's terrible. I don't want to do business with them at all. In which case they would shrink and you'd have a new three. So you'd have to undesignate three and designate three new ones. Well, that's not good regulation. As a product, if there's an issue, a flaw in the product, you have to address that flaw and you have to have everybody play by the same rules. Otherwise, you're just shifting the money around and shifting the risk around. Same with OTC derivatives. If you regulated three, the top three broker dealers who were active in derivatives differently than the rest, people either like it, in which case those three get bigger, or they don't like it, in which case they move on and, and it's a new three. So this idea of products and activities is really about creating an even playing field and addressing vulnerabilities at that level because that's the way to reduce systemic risk in asset management. In terms of FSOC's role in designation, in its early years, FSOC and asset managers had a huge tug of war on whether the industry should be deemed as systemically important. What was the rationale in that designation? And with respect to systemic risk, how important are asset managers relative to other market participants? So keep in mind, FSOC started their work. In fact, they did the first of the proposals on designations and out for comment. And they actually asked questions which led to answers that they realized they needed to do a separate deeper dive on asset management. So asset management was not the initial focus. They then went and commissioned a study. Um, that study took over a year. I think it was close to two years. And when that study came back, unfortunately, it was a lot of conjecture 
and a lot of misinformation. And then that was put out for comment and the comments came in saying, we actually think you've got it wrong. So for example, the study suggested that there was a lot of risk in large separate accounts that were managed for pension plans. And we said, that can't be. Um, most pension plans don't let you leverage because they have unrelated tax, business taxable income issues. Um, most pension plans don't let you use a lot of derivatives uh, for a host of reasons. And in fact, most of the large separate accounts are actually incredibly boring. They're long only, light on derivatives, no leverage, and lots of them are even using index mandates. And that directly contradicted what was in the report. So SIFMA undertook a study and they were able to get a bunch of firms to contribute data on an anonymized basis. And they were actually able to prove that those large separate accounts were not stuffed with derivatives, were not stuffed with illiquid assets, were not levered, were not this big source of risk. And that's just one example. Um, and that was almost like the low hanging fruit. That one was so obviously wrong, it was very easy to disprove. But many, many things in that report were obviously wrong and were disproved over time. So it wasn't so much, um, I don't think it was BlackRock focused. In fact, it was the whole industry. And it was the beginning of that whole educational journey. A while later, FSOC put out a request for information. And it had several different pillars. I'm trying to remember exactly. Uh, one was on liquidity. Um, one was on operational risk. And I think there were four of them in total. And they put this out asking for information, many, many questions. And I think they got some really good responses. And it was from that that they were able to then do follow on. You know, the SEC did some regulation that made sense in that framework, the OCC as well. You know, the OCC regulates trust companies. So I think the outcome was actually a really good outcome. And it was that product level type of regulation. Um, so I think it did shift the focus over time as people understood better what the risks were and weren't. Um, and the idea of designating individual firms really was not going to reduce risk in the financial markets. So unfortunately, the conversation on entity-based approach has came back yet again, with Senator Warren recently asking Treasury Secretary Yellen to reconsider BlackRock's destination. What do you think has caused this renewed interest, and do they have any new arguments well, I'm happy to say I'm retired, so I don't know if there are new arguments. But, uh, you know, I think there's continued interest in anything that is large. Uh, we are a large, uh, BlackRock is a, a large asset manager, um, largest in the world, but there are a number of other large asset managers who I think are also um, in that discussion and, and are of interest. I think if they look back at the work that FSOC did under the Obama administration, that was when the pivot was decided. So I don't think that uh, there's a lot of reason to change what was decided then. So let's, uh, let's ask one more FSOC question. We're going to pivot a little bit and start focusing on ESG. But 
recently, uh, in the first FSOC meeting, the new administration, Secretary Yellen said making climate risk a priority was important. And she said, it is an existential threat to our environment and it poses a tremendous risk to our country's financial stability. And I'm going to point also to a letter, uh, one of Larry Fink's CEO letter, the most recent one, where he also focused attention on climate risk, but he called it an investment risk, not a systemic risk. And so my question for you is, is FSOC heading the right or wrong direction with climate risk in terms of systemic versus investment? I do think climate risk is an investment risk. And I think whether you're looking at the impact, let's say, on municipalities, coastal flooding issues, or you're looking at the impact on you know, commercial real estate, um, you know, there's a number of very real assets that are directly impacted and if they're owned by corporations and the company as well. So there's that level of investment risk. There's also, I think, a regulatory level. And you see all around the world new initiatives, some of them purely disclosure oriented, but many of them curtailing emissions or fundamentally changing the use of energy and the types of energy being used. And some of those are still being written, so we don't know exactly where it's going to land. But you can imagine a world where countries do say um, all vehicles have to be electric or you know, there's favoring of investment in wind and solar and transmission related to that or defavoring coal or oil or perhaps in some places even natural gas, right? But these are all the discussions that are going on right now. I think it's going to be interesting to see how natural gas fits in. It's going to be interesting to see how nuclear fits in. It's going to be interesting to see how hydro fits in. So, you know, again, the, the chapter hasn't been all written. It's being written right now. Does that rise to a level of systemic risk? I'm not sure. I think it depends how you define that um, and what your time horizon is. I think of systemic risks as things that are nearer term and are you know, likely. I think the, the definition is if one entity falls, does it create a propagation through the system for other entities to fall? I don't really see how that's the case here. I think there's a very real investment risk. I'm not sure that it translates as clearly into systemic risk. Not representing anybody else's opinion. Duly noted. It took me a year or two stop disclaiming everything I said after a decade at the SEC. It took a long time to get rid of that habit, uh, but now I freely give my opinion. So ESG, this is an area clearly of interest to the administration. Gary Gensler was just confirmed as the SEC chair. He stated that it was going to be a priority. The former acting chair, Allison Heron-Lee, was also very focused on it. And if you look recently at things that have been done, I believe the examinations division, formerly known as OC at the SEC, has been making referrals to enforcement. And enforcement now has a climate risk task force. And I'm just curious from your perspective, like how does this affect an asset management firm like BlackRock? You know, noting that Larry has said there are important issues generally. I mean, does it affect the asset management business specifically? 
So I would say ESG is extremely important in the investment business. If you look back, the first white paper we wrote on ESG was probably more than five years ago. I'd have to look in the archives. And what we said in that paper was that there was a need for consistent data. And in fact, we included an appendix to that paper where we identified the alphabet soup of all the different initiatives and how many different entities had defined ESG this way or that way and were each coming up with their own standards. The premise at that time was, if that's the direction, that's a Tower of Babel. You can't make any headway on addressing ESG if everyone has defined it differently. So that was the beginning of a journey which has three prongs. Number one, what is the company level data? Where do you find it? How is it defined? Who's reporting it? Who's not reporting it? And over time, we came out with a fairly explicit endorsement of both TCFD for climate information and SASB as a framework that was industry specific as opposed to one standard for everything. I mean, a, a retail company doesn't have a lot in common with a pharmaceutical company, doesn't have a lot in common with a tech company or an energy company. And you can't have one set of metrics that goes across all those different entities. So the idea was SASB had made the investment to have industry-specific criteria. We started out um, just verbally. I, I gave a number of speeches and tried to build support for that. And then in 2020, I'm trying to remember which year is which. Yeah, in, in 2020, Larry included it in his letter. And of course, we saw a lot more interest um, generated by the issuers themselves. They wanted to know what it was we were looking for. And it wasn't just BlackRock. When you look at who's on the advisory board of SASB and who's participating in TCFD, it's many, many institutional investors looking for the same information. So you can scrape it from here and there and try and create it yourself, or the companies can give it to you in a format that is consistent and can be compared and makes sense. So that's a fundamental building block. The second important building block is how are portfolios or products named, labeled, described, etc. So I'll give an example. If you just say, this is an ESG product, what does that mean? Does it mean it doesn't have any fossil fuel companies? Well, maybe it has natural gas, but it excludes coal. Or maybe it has um, a criteria where you say, in this index, I'm going to pick the companies in every sector that have the best ESG scores, but I'm not going to exclude any sector. Or maybe you're a healthcare institution and you really don't want anything that has tobacco. So this idea that ESG is defined so differently for different investors makes complicates the situation. So we came out with a framework, sort of a three-pillar framework, of how do 
talk about, either name, label, in some way start differentiating different kinds of ESG products. So the first group being screened. It doesn't include X or it doesn't include X and Y. That's a screened portfolio. At the other extreme, it's an impact portfolio. This portfolio focuses on green bonds. This portfolio focuses on alternative energy. And then there's the stuff in the middle where ESG factors are considered as investment factors in the decision process. And you might even have that tilt. Let me take companies with a better ESG score, but you don't exclude whole sectors. I would say all three of those are ESG products. And this is the challenge for the SEC. And whether it's the enforcement or, or whatever um, you know, process they're using, the exams, what is it somebody is claiming? And then are they following through with what they claim? This gets into the whole question of greenwashing. Somebody picks up a, a prospectus and says, you send this as an ESG portfolio, but I found you have 1% in natural gas. Are you greenwashing or not? Well, it depends. Were you in the exclusionary bucket? In which case I'd say, well, if you said there's no fossil fuel, why is that in there? Are you in the impact bucket? Are you in that middle category? And if you are in that middle category, what's your strategy? So I liken it to turn the clock back 20, 30 years. Style boxes. I have an equity portfolio. Okay, well, that's pretty broad. No, I have a small cap value portfolio. I have a large cap growth portfolio. I start having a language that everyone is talking the same language. They're using the same vocabulary. And we actually wrote a paper about a year and a half ago called Towards a Common Language. And the idea was you need that fundamental company level, but then you also need that product level. Investors need an easy way to find what they're looking for, whether it's the end investor or it's a broker as an intermediary or it's an institutional investor. There needs to be some way of describing products in the ESG space that people buy into. So, in fact, um, in addition to our paper, IIF, which is um, International Finance Group, they put out a short paper and they represent insurers, banks, and asset managers. And their categories were similar, not identical, but really a very similar concept. The ICI, the Investment Company Institute, which is essentially represents the mutual fund industry in the U.S. and pretty broad swath of it. If it's not 100%, it's in the high 90s. Their board endorsed a paper that they had a, a committee write, which was, again, a three-pillar approach similar to our own thinking, and presented that to the SEC, that we would like the SEC to come up with categories so that we can get rid of this question of, are you being forthcoming? Are you helping investors? Are you greenwashing? Let's make it more clear. Now, the SEC maybe isn't in the business of doing that. They certainly don't do the style boxes. Maybe Morningstar needs to do that. Someone needs to do that. But I do think the product naming and the product labeling, the product description 
is an important component. The third component is how do you report on those portfolios? So we put out a template and we actually report on all of the ETFs we manage around the world. I think at this point, um, BlackRock might be reporting on all the mutual funds as well, but I haven't really looked at that recently. And here again, you can describe what you're going to do, but the proof is in the pudding. I want a one-page data sheet that tells me, is there fossil fuel? Is there tobacco? Is there you know, a bunch of hot button issues and really gives me the metrics at the portfolio level to see, is this the portfolio I wanted? And so we actually put that all out on the web. And I think for the SEC and, and, and for the new chair, I think there's an opportunity at all three of those levels to do some really good work and to help end investors. And I think at the end of the day, it would be positive for asset managers because right now there's a lot of confusion and misinformation. And I think the more it can be defined or, or clarified, at least have some guardrails, not prescriptive, not overly prescriptive, but something that helps people answer those questions, I think would be actually quite positive. So I think you answered a number of the follow-up questions I had just by explaining that in such detail. And I liked how you used the, the terminology ESG style language. But I'm wondering how much of this is a regulatory or regulator issue versus a market just reaching equilibrium. And you said having guardrails might be helpful. Like what are those guardrails? Like what should the SEC do now to provide the minimum level of guidance or to help the industry get to that point? That is a challenging question. Certainly different commissioners have very different views on this. It was very clear several years ago that the SEC did not consider this part of their responsibility or purview. And that was one of the reasons we worked with IIF and ICI and others to try and create a market solution. So us publicly endorsing SASB and TCFD, and then, you know, I think State Street did, I think Vanguard did, I think a number of certainly large asset managers, not just independent asset managers, but large pension funds in Canada, in Australia, quite a few different entities publicly endorsed that those two frameworks. TCFD being very climate specific and SASB being more broad um, across uh, different aspects of ESG. And personally, I think it's fine for it to be a market-led solution, but we do need a solution. And I use that style box analogy because imagine if all you had were equity portfolios and nobody had any idea what was inside any of them. That really wouldn't work. And you think about equity portfolios, there is a very well understood definition of what is large cap growth, what is small cap value. It's not a mystery. And then people like Morningstar will look at a portfolio and they will say, I think this portfolio has portfolio drift. I don't think you're, you're really being true to what you say. And so it's a self-policing mechanism. I think that would be perfectly fine in the ESG space.
We have to start with, can we agree on what those categories are? And the SEC, even if they didn't do a rule or guidance or something that's so official, they certainly have convening power. They can bring people together in a way. They can have an open discussion. They can encourage people to come to a market solution. So I, I'm not necessarily an advocate that it, it must be regulatory driven. I think we need a solution. And ideally, it would be something that maybe IOSCO can be involved in driving so that it can be adopted globally. Um, IOSCO has put some information out in this area. Again, I think it's pretty much in sync with our own thinking. Um, and you know, they're a regulatory group that represents markets-based regulators all over the world. So I think that, uh, I guess I would say, from where we were when we wrote the first paper to where we are today, uh, light years ahead, um, but still some work to be done to bring this over the line. Something that has always struck me in regulation is just how different the approach is from different countries, namely the US versus the EU. So as a global asset manager, how does BlackRock reconcile these disclosure differences, these approach differences in policy? As a global asset manager, you have to be in compliance with all the rules in all the different jurisdictions. And that was something that we recognized early on. And we actually have legal and compliance people all over the world steeped in the local rules. Um, in the EU, in addition to the EU level, which is ESMA, there is a securities regulator in virtually every country. So the FCA in the UK, um, you know, AMF in, in France, BaFin in Germany, etc. You have to be in, in compliance with all the rules. So I'll give an example of where rules diverge. There's something called threshold reporting, which has to do with your ownership of a company. And in every jurisdiction around the world, threshold reporting is done differently. Some places it's electronic, some places it's paper. Some places it's report within one day, some places it's report within three days. Some places it's a 1% test, some places it's a 5% test. And every combination permutation you can think of. So many years ago, as you talked about, Scott, one of your um, speeches, many years ago, I was giving a speech um, or participating in a panel um, in Brussels. And I said, I have a dream that all the securities regulators will get together and rationalize this threshold reporting because we try really, really hard to always be in compliance. And this is an area where it's so complicated and so technical and so many different variations. Every once in a while, we stub our toe and it's then some kind of public humiliation. There's a big settlement. We pay a fine. We, there's a press release. And it looks like we've done something terrible, nefarious. You know, we're, we're bad people when, in fact, we're trying really, really hard to comply. And, you know, maybe something changed and we missed it. Who knows? There's many ways you could have a footfall on, on threshold reporting. 
it generated a story in the press that was incredibly unfavorable and made me seem like I didn't appreciate local rules and customs. So I give that example uh, because it was a learning for me. Um, regulators are going to look at things from different lenses. It would be great to see regulatory convergence, especially on a new area. You know, what I heard about threshold reporting is, you know, in many countries, it's actually baked into legislation. It's not just the regulator who has a say in what you're doing, how, how you know, what the thresholds are, how quickly you have to report. It might actually be baked into like, let's say it's not in Dodd-Frank, but a Dodd-Frank kind of thing. So it wouldn't be the regulator that has to change it. You'd have to go back to the legislature and say, I want to change this because I want to be in sync with the rest of the world. Okay, good luck. That's not really going to happen. Um, so as we see the ESG stuff emerging, and it's such a new area, we're hoping that folks like IOSCO and TCFD and the FSB and these multilateral organizations can be helpful in shaping, while it might not be exactly the same country to country, the more it can be a common framework, the more helpful it is. We offer products, um, certainly from the EU, uh, we use the USITs, we offer those products um, in multiple markets. If the standards are different in every market, it's going to be very, very difficult to comply. And then you start having the balkanization and, and the fragmentation, and you're offering smaller and smaller products, which becomes very expensive for the end investor. So if you want to be able to offer products at scale and be able to offer the best investment ideas from market to market, the more the standards can be rationalized and, and have that regulatory convergence, I think the better for the end investors. But very difficult to get there because people do have their own ideas and they may have other regulation that interacts or intersects and you know, they need to think about that. You've been with us for a while, longer than we expected, and we didn't get near, nearly through all the questions we wanted to ask. But we do have a couple of final questions for you to think about and consider and tell our listeners about. And the first is, if you can take all this conversation, all your body of work that you've done over the past decade, uh, what do you think the asset management world is going to look like in the next few years in terms of the big issues that it needs to solve to the extent that we didn't cover them here in this discussion? We didn't talk at all about technology, and technology is critical to asset management. It has been for a long time. I think that is an emerging area for regulators to understand. And it's not just about cyber risk. It's also about operational resilience. The industry held up wonderfully well in the COVID crisis from an operational resilience. But there were some learnings. There were some issues about pricing. There were some issues about paper delivery. There are some things that could be improved upon. So I think technology is, is a critical component looking forward. We've talked about sustainability. I think ESG and sustainable investing, they're here to stay. They're very much fundamental. Those are probably the two biggest ones going forward. Barbara, it has been so enlightening to hear your perspectives on these issues, but I'd like to end with a more personal question. You are one of the most 
influential woman in finance and someone that a lot of people like myself look up to. Can you share your experiences as a woman in a male-dominated field? And can you give some advice to young people like myself who are starting out in their careers? I've seen a sea change. I started my career 40 years ago. It was rare to have another woman in the room, almost never. And it was rare to meet anyone who had children or anything close to that. Today, you roll it forward. Uh, we went from no role models, no managing directors, no principals, no senior women at any of the firms that I was aware of. And you know, one of the few sort of icons was Muriel Siebert. And I remember going to a talk and she was a ball of fire. And I thought, wow, you know, there is one, there's one, <laughs> but that was it. And today, you know, just at BlackRock alone, the number of managing directors is spectacular. And you go across the industry. We have now a first female CEO of a major bank over at Citi. Uh, we have, you know, people like Janet Yellen, who's been both the Fed governor and the Treasury secretary. And you know, Christine Lagarde, I mean, you just look around, there are role models. But in finance, there's also still a minority. Look at the central bank community. Look at the picture with Christine Lagarde in a room with everybody else in a black suit. And, you know, I'm sure the meetings that Janet Yellen is in. So I think that we've made tremendous progress, but I think there's still some structural barriers. Some of it is personal choice, and I don't want to in any way downplay that. I don't want to overplay it, but, you know, the amount of travel, the amount of hours, there's definitely a number of people who opt out for personal reasons, and I respect that. But I think there's also certain barriers that need to be addressed, and I think, you know, we need to make sure someone who wants to go for it has the opportunity and has an equal opportunity set. We're not quite there. Barbara, we really appreciate you taking the time to join us. That was fantastic. Thank you. Great. Well, nice to see you. Shuming, great job on the questions, by the way. Uh, the, I think you really captured a, a lot of the things that we should have talked about and uh, made it really very pleasant and easy. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed today's episode as much as I did. Barbara was remarkably successful in her position, and I learned quite a bit from watching her over the years. She may have worked for BlackRock and conveyed the firm's views, but she did more than that. She advocated for healthy and well-functioning markets that would serve the American public, and she was relentless in that pursuit. What was particularly notable about her approach, and which is rare among those who lobby regulators, is that she always came to arm with high-quality data analysis, and she explained how it supported a particular policy position. And if you didn't like it, she expected a data explanation in return. She fought relentlessly and ultimately successfully behind the scenes to eliminate the pejorative term shadow banking from the vocabularies of regulators both in the U.S. and internationally. It is now officially called non-bank financial intermediation. And in our interview, she explained why that was important and how the associated activities proved resilient during the COVID crisis, in many cases due to the reforms advocated by her and others who were like-minded. One last thought I wanted to share. During our interview, I recounted the story about giving public remarks at the Central Bank of Ireland on the regulation of ETFs, where something I said was disagreeable and made its way back to the home office in DC before I even had a chance to step down from the podium. And now for the rest of the story. 
My remarks, like all public remarks that are given by SEC officials, they get vetted, in this case, by no less than seven staff across the agency. To this day, I don't know the offending remark. My penance was to invite Barbara in to discuss the ETF issue with those seven people and a few more to make sure there was no misunderstanding. She accepted the invitation, brought in her team, and after we assembled in a conference room, I opened the discussion by explaining why we were there. Instead, she used the opening to discuss more important issues. She had no interest in discussing the minutia of a misspoken phrase or word, if that in fact is what happened. She wanted to focus attention on what mattered most in financial markets on that particular day. And I learned something. And that wasn't the only time I learned something from her. I watched her present and hold court in a number of settings. She is one of the most significant influencers of financial market regulation that you may have never heard of. And in my view, the American public has much to thank her for, even if they don't know it. Today's episode is a production of the Salem Center for Policy, housed in the Macomb School of Business at the University of Texas at Austin. The series is part of the Texas Podcast Network, and the opinions expressed represent those of the views of the hosts and the guests, and not the University of Texas at Austin. The student producers of the episode are Zoe Tarr and Abby Sawyer of the Middle School of Communication. Mm-hmm.